All right, welcome to episode 14. Going to start off with an update on the Chinese hack on federal data. So basically the story so far has been that there was a federal information system that had data on federal employees and that the Chinese were able to come in and this is not just some random hacker group, but the actual Chinese army, the official state-sponsored cybersecurity group, were able to come in and uh, steal all of that data on the employees, which was bad enough. But it looks like an additional wrinkle that I found uh, in some some news feed that I read was that uh, it wasn't just any sort of data. It was also data on... Uh, clearance holders, uh, specifically the data that they provide when they're trying to get a clearance. And what's particularly scary about this is the way that they go about gathering data for someone who is trying to get a clearance. What they do is they sit you down and they say, all right, so we're not going to ask you any questions. Start off by telling us everything. By the way, we already know everything. We, we know when you're lying. We know when you lie by omission. So you need to just tell me everything. That includes drug use, includes, you know, stealing a Snickers, and it includes everything that, and you don't want to have a miss of omission or of deception. So uh, they proceed to just fill out like dozens of pages about their innermost details of their lives. That's what was stolen for every federal employee who has a clearance. And evidently was going back to the 80s. Now, if this is true, which it sounds like it might be, that's just frightening. Um, also, the data wasn't encrypted. Uh, again, if that's true, that's just insane. Um, so going back to the previous episode, I mean, this is all contributing to this massive database of basically surface area of attack uh, whether these people now have elevated clearances, uh, think about password hints or password questions uh, for somebody like this. It'd be so easy to, you know, attack someone like that um, or use them really to get into a higher level system. There's no one's thinking that the Chinese are going after individuals. It's all about having a body of knowledge that you can use to escalate into more secure systems, you know, classified systems. So really big news, uh, very disappointing and a bit disturbing. Um, another really disturbing one coming out of the Snowden stuff is that there are reports that Russia and China have now accessed the NSA data that Snowden had. And a lot of people are saying, hold on, I thought that wasn't possible. I thought he didn't give them anything. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, if this has been hashed out even more since I looked at it. But, you know, there are people wondering either one of two things, you know, did Snowden give something up when he said he didn't, which, you know, knowing as little as I know about it, I, I would say he probably didn't. But they're still raising the questions of, well, was he less careful than we thought? You know, did he give the data to too many people? Did one of them give up the data um, and the ability to decrypt it? Um, or did one of the other people who had it, 
one of these other uh, journalists, did they get hacked? Did they get extorted? Did they get whatever somehow forced to give it to them? Uh, either way, if it turns out that all this data is now in the hands of the Russians or the Chinese or both, that's pretty bad news and, and a really bad development in the whole Snowden is a hero, uh, I guess, narrative, right? Because the, the whole argument from the other side is, look, you can't steal this stuff and give it to reporters because it's very irresponsible and it could get out. And they say, yeah, but I was really careful. Well, now if the Chinese and the Russians have it, then uh, it really does uh, a lot of damage to Snowden's reputation, regardless of whether or not he gave it to them personally or directly. Um, Microsoft has just classified the Ask uh, toolbar as unwanted software. So they've basically joined the ranks of every other internet user since uh, forever. So that's nice of them to add themselves to the pile. The Twitter CEO is resigning. I uh, really hope this doesn't mean bad, bad things for Twitter. Um, I think the Twitter is hard, right? It's hard to monetize. And I think, I don't know, I don't know much about the thing, but from what I do know and what I can gather, it seems like he was trying to do the best he could within the lines of keeping Twitter what it is today. And that if they bring in someone who says, you know, I have the answer, I can bring in billions of dollars off of Twitter then it could mean that Twitter is going to change quite a bit in the very near future in a way that most of us will not like. Um, I actually did a post recently about when is Twitter getting RSS feeds? And in hindsight, that was extremely dumb because <laughs> they're trying to make money as much as possible. Like they're not going to put it out an RSS feed of their content because the whole purpose is to get you to the website or to a client that displays ads. And they're not going to just give away data um, that makes that not useful, right? <clears throat> the ads are everything for them, uh, which is really disturbing, you know? I, I mean, I was thinking of more of as, as a, uh, it's like a service or it's like this thing they're providing. And they've got a side thing where they can make money. But in general, they're just providing the service. But it's not a service. It's a, it's a company. They're trying to make money. And they're not going to do things that don't make them money. So that solves that question of the RSS. Because um, I was comparing it to Reddit, which is actually a company as well. And they're making money. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I just hope this doesn't get worse if the focus becomes more and more on how they make, you know, increasingly large amounts of money. I mean, if the ads are just like constant with the content sprinkled with within, um, they're going to hurt themselves more than help themselves, I think. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, the new Microsoft phone may be getting an iris scanner, which is cool. Um, and we, we have already got you know, fingerprints. Um, a couple of bank apps are doing facial recognition. Uh, now we're going to have iris scanner. So it's pretty cool to see additional options for two-factor auth entering into the consumer space. Um, Sammy Kamkar, uh, well-known uh, security researcher. He's been around for a long time. He's done some cool stuff. Um, 
he did one talk about how I met your girlfriend all about basically tracking people through social media, like often all the way down to their house. I think it was XF data and photos for that one. But um, he just puts out stuff pretty constantly on a regular basis. I think he's mostly um, private, like doing his own thing, but he might work at a company. I'm not sure, but really high quality stuff, really innovative, like custom research. And um, what he just did was he released some new little device based on like some kid's toy, basically, that he hacked up. And he can basically bust any um, garage door opener uh, within like 10 seconds. And turns out it was just like, it's a brute force question. And all brute force questions come down to how can you reduce the complexity of the attack or the, the number of the amount of space that you have to cover in your brute force and he found a number of levers to pull to reduce the space down. So in most cases, he could break like something like 90% of garage doors in less than 10 seconds, which is pretty cool. Um, Sam, uh, let's see, oh, VMware patch, a major issue that allowed people to break out of their VMs. So it sounds like if you're in a decent security environment, you probably want to apply that VMware patch as soon as possible. Uh, 96% of UK corporations are now reporting that they've been hacked. I looked at the source of the data because it seemed like a high number, but evidently this research or this um, data gathering has been going on for a very long time and is very meticulous. And they've been capturing this uh, the survey data. Uh, I think it's mostly surveys. Not sure where else you would get that, but... Um, yeah, 96% saying that they've been hacked. So this goes back to the common story that pretty much anyone in InfoSec is telling, which is it's not if, but when, and you probably already are. Compromise is inevitable. And uh, what, one thing I think that comes from that is not you know relaxing, but saying to yourself, how do I start dealing with the compromise, right? And I, I did a thing a long time ago about um, moving away from prevention and focusing more on resilience and more on impact reduction. And I think the number one way to do that is, um, is basically incident response, right? How, how can you well, detect if it's inside, but also respond to it and also clean up afterwards and then remediate or adjust based on what you learned. I think those final five steps in the, uh, the attack life cycle you know, it's not about prevention, which is the first couple steps, but what about the other five or 10 steps afterwards, after you've been compromised? I think most companies are really, really bad at those steps. And um, that's, that's where we have the most to grow as an industry. And that's where I think a lot more focus is going to be placed over the next few years. Um, and if you are a security practitioner inside of an internal company or you're a security consultant, I think this is the area to help your customers with more or, or help your own company with more is saying, you know, what would I do in X case or Y case or Z case? You know, how would we respond and how can we be sure that'll, that'll um, you know, go in a way that we like rather than being a complete shit show when it does happen. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently. Um, Raph Lose, a friend of mine, 
uh, in the industry has been around forever. He um, has a very cool podcast. Uh, not, not exactly sure what it, I think it's some play on his uh, nickname, which is the white rabbit. So it's like down the security hole or something like that. Um, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Wonderland uh, basically play there. But um, he just had on a couple of guests focused on uh, incident response. It was really great. And uh, one of the quotes we got from that was, uh, and I tweeted out earlier, was um, sweat more in peace so you can bleed less in war. And this is an incident response story, right? And what they were specifically talking about was tabletops, right? You've got these different groups. You got network groups, you got security groups, you got server people, and you got executives, <clears throat> and you've got the public that needs to be updated, you know, maybe, or maybe certain customers or partners need to be updated. Um, and if something goes down, what normally happens in, in most companies is there's complete pandemonium. Uh, people are being called at random times and being asked for updates. That just adds to the stress. Nobody has a playbook. Uh, people just don't know what to do. Um, one thing I wish he would have talked about, which is really important, is knowing when something is an event versus when something is an incident, right? Just being able to define that. Um, because I've seen too many situations where the company just sits around and they're like, well, do we press the red button? Do we pull the lever? Like, who do we call? How do we know this is bad? Is this bad? I think it's bad. Looks bad to me. And it's like, well, you either declare an incident or you don't, because once you do, there are certain things that have to happen. You start, you have to start worrying about how you're handling evidence. You have to start worrying about snapshots. You start, have to start worrying about chain of custody in case you want to follow up with some sort of investigation or prosecution. So it's like the stuff has to be nailed down. And uh, just as with uh, disaster recovery or, um, you know, backups and that sort of thing, uh, business continuity, you've got to practice, right? You've got to practice this stuff. And uh, that's where it comes down to the tabletop exercises. And okay, so-and-so incident was just found or so-and-so event just took place. Is it an incident? What do you do? And um, have the right people on the phone, have the processes, you know, written down and ready to execute. You know, the phone numbers to call, you know, who's involved in what meetings you have a war line set up. All these things are like super critical for being successful and doesn't mean you will be successful, but it does mean if you don't do that, you won't. So I um, thought that was a great podcast uh, that Raflos is doing. You should definitely check it out. Uh, I believe it's like down the security rabbit hole. That might be it. Um, but definitely check that out. Um, Apple is switching to universal links inside of iOS nine, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't have the full list of differences, but, um, they're basically moving away from URL schemes and moving to these universal links where you can link to any part of any application with an HTTPS link and kinds of advantages you're going to be getting are um, attribution. You're going to know which app is calling. You're going to be able to have a default um, app that opens a certain type of uh, content. Whereas um, with the URL scheme, um, you can actually have a call that doesn't go anywhere and nothing happens. Um, there's also some 
privacy things that you can do a lot better with the new uh, universal link structure. So that's pretty cool. Um, it, kind of going down the line of their increased focus on privacy uh, over the last, uh, I would say, six months or so, it's been picking up. Um, IP6, uh, IPv6 traffic. So one of the sort of raised just like a minor uh, awareness issue around IPv6. This is something that um, uh, Johannes Ulrich has been talking about for a long time. Uh, this is years back. He was actually telling me about this, um, but I never really paid that much attention to it just because IPv6 was so young then. But um, I recently had an issue where um, I was trying to pass some traffic into my home network and it was just completely blocked. And I talked to support and they're like, yeah, yeah, you definitely, you can pass anything you want as long as you do it with, with um, IPv6. So I'm in the process of doing that now, um, which is, it's going to be fun, like passing and natting and doing all this stuff with IPv6 instead of IPv4. So it's a learning experience. I, I don't have extensive experience with IPv6. It'd be kind of my first time doing firewall, networky packet capture type of stuff with IPv6. Um, and uh, the thing that I think is cool about it is you basically, you could be running a network right now that you think is completely locked down. You do port scans, you look at your NAT rules and your firewall rules, everything's locked down, but you have IPv6 enabled and who knows what the default host is. You, you could have people able to NAT into um, or basically pass traffic into your network and you not even know because you have an IPv6 surface area for people to look at and attack. So I think just as a bullet point here uh, for this, this story, check and see for your, for your corporate networks, for your home networks, for any network that you have some sort of interest in protecting, see if you are listening in IPv6 and see if you can pass traffic in and out. Just because you have defenses in place and a good solid, solid network configuration IPv4 doesn't mean it's the same for IPv6. So I would say definitely check that out. Um, Hue will be getting HomeKit support uh, very soon. So I was really wondering about this. I was in the Apple store the other day, seeing a whole bunch of devices that you can only assume are gonna have HomeKit support soon uh, because they're in the Apple store. And it's all kinds of stuff, you know, August uh, door locks and different lighting systems. Obviously they have Hue that they sell there. That's where I got my stuff from, but I've got a few, um, got them on right now, actually. I really enjoy them. I enjoy these, you know, network enabled lights. Obviously they're on a completely separate network. All the stuff I do on IOT, I consider them highly suspect and uh, insecure and all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, not any particular vendor. I just assume all IOT is insecure and have it completely segmented uh, in its own area, uh, not able to talk to the rest of the network, uh, which I also recommend for anybody. But I find it interesting that we're now going to be able to do stuff with HomeKit. And what that means is you basically have Siri and iOS and Mac integration into your devices. 
um, which, which means you come home or you tell Siri, hey, turn on the lights while you're driving, or you come home and it knows you're home, so it turns on the lights for you. So all the stuff that sort of, you know, Jetson's idea of the future smart home stuff, that really starts to happen the moment your OS and your personal device is integrating with the surroundings. And that's what HomeKit really is. And I'm really happy to see that Hue, uh, which is one of the IoT systems I have here at the house, um, are actually going to support it. Um, and final little thing here, Apple is building a high-speed network for faster cloud services. And the idea is they don't want to be using, you know, Azure and and uh, Amazon and whatever they're using now. They don't want to be using that as much. So they're building up their own infrastructure. My own sort of private hope here is that they're doing it so that they can compete with Gmail and compete with uh, Flickr and all these other services that exist out there, whatever else Google is doing. I'm, I'm really hoping that they're going to allow us to bring over our personal domain emails very soon. This is something I've wanted forever. I've hold it off leaving Google mail because um, I'm holding out for Apple to allow me to port my domain over to iCloud so I can have you know, you know, Daniel at DanielMeeser.com hosted on Apple, have that be its own calendar. It's integrated directly into iOS and the Mac and everything else. Um, and hopefully this major investment in this whole backend cloud infrastructure is hinting at that happening. Um, I really hope that's the case. And uh, that's it for this episode. I will uh, see you guys shortly. I, I will probably doing be doing more of these. Um, I, I'm not going to only do once a week. I'm hoping to do at least one a week, but um, I'm starting to do more audio in my regular blog posts as well. Sometimes I will just do a, a an, an audio version of the text. Other times I'll just purely do audio and I'm um, finding it easier, easy to do just like a quick little clip, upload it to SoundCloud, embed it in the post. And even if it's 30 seconds or four minutes or whatever, um, so some of those will be security related clips, which I will put under this banner of podcast. And, um, it might not be a full show with like, you know, news or whatever, but if it's just some interesting security idea, I might do it in audio format and it'll show up, um, on the podcast, um, in the feed in iTunes, um, and obviously on the site. So till next time, I'll see you guys later.